I just wanted to start by thanking you a lot because I think like in, in times like this where there's violence and upset and frustration, it's really important that we have communication because this dialogue is going to be the thing that, that helps heal the nation, not the violence. Absolutely, Lucas. And you know, one of the biggest thing that, that I got out of it, this movement is um, an understanding that I personally had to be better. One of the things I, I, I strive to be the best man I can be every day, but I had fear of engaging in conversations like this for fear of making a mistake. Um, and, uh, and I understand now that that's not acceptable, that people need to hear from people that look like me and people that wear my uniform and uh, that, and I have to be as a person able to put myself out there recognizing that I will make mistakes. And this is a journey, not, you know, uh, it's not like I'm gonna graduate and all of a sudden be eyes wide open, but um, so I, I have to take that risk. Uh, I, I risk. I'm willing to risk my life, my community, and I'm willing to risk uh, making mistakes in this conversation as well. And hopefully if I do, I've earned a little forgiveness and as part of this growth process. I mean, that, that's really powerful, um, Chief Bennett. And I, I think I, I won't be, the only one to applaud your initiative in, in that manner. Cause there's a whole lot of people out there who are still too afraid to make mistakes. And um, I, I think it shows that, you know, your, your character that, um, you know, you're a good guy with good intentions. And so too are a lot of Thank police you. officers. Absolutely. Thank you, Lucas. The first thing I just wanted to ask is like, what do you think about what's going on right now? You know, it's, it's all moving so fast and the conversation is moving so fast. It's uh it is daunting to just as you start to wrap your your thoughts around a particular topic it shifts you know um i think uh, i know that in my 29 years of law enforcement most people have just been out there trying to do right by people i know that um we don't have a problem of bias in my organization or in uh, uh or it doesn't seem and it doesn't seem to be around the town but I wouldn't see it, right? <clears throat> the more subtle, the more subtle acts of racism and bias, you, you know, you, sometimes you don't notice. Um, yeah. But, uh, and I think that uh, through the relationship with the community, there's a good opportunity for us to stand with the members of the community and, and challenge, challenge yeah. everything. And I think everything is on the table. And that showed when, when you were at a Black Lives Matter rally and not in uniform and, and not carrying a weapon. And um, it shows that you really do care about the community. And um, I, I just have some questions and, and yep. some proposals maybe. Um, I don't know if proposal is the right word, but just some thoughts um, that I'd like okay. to share with you and discuss. First of all, do you think that the violence um, among you know the riots and the protests, although few and far between that, that the violence is justified? So, you know, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, and this is my, my personal opinion, and this is as part of a lecture topic when I, when I lecture uh, at colleges is, unfortunately, movements and protests can be hijacked. And we've seen that repeatedly in history. And that's why I was comfortable going into the community the way I was uh, last Sunday because I know our community. They're not going to throw bricks and rocks at me. They're not going to burn our pizza shops down and loot our merchants. That's not going to happen. 
but I have to be cognizant that there are other people that will come to town to do that. So I guess in the short, no, I'm not a proponent of violence. Uh, it, you know, a violence is a, is a tool of, of last resort to save lives. Um, and, and that's my, my opinion. It's no violence. There's nobody, I, I haven't found anybody who doesn't agree that what happened was, was I can't think of a strong enough word, appalling, disgusting, uh, it, it it rocked me, my, it broke my heart to see someone do that and wear a uniform. And we have that behind us. We're all on the same page. We don't need, we don't need violence to bring it to light. It's yeah, it is there. It's in the light. Now I I know you can't speak for all police um, or, or law enforcement areas or, or agencies. I guess across the country, mm -hmm. but in, in your specific realm in Massachusetts and in Hopkinson in particular. Do you believe that black people are criminalized more so than white people? I don't. I, I, I genuinely don't. We do, we have, I, ha, I wish I'd had time to run the numbers, but we almost never arrest, arrest black people. We don't. It, it's just not. And, and that's because they're just not here. <laughs> very low, low residential black population. And even on the streets, they're just not there. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, it's just not present. Yeah, and that's what um, of, that was part of my reservation of why I was uh, really nervous about entering in this conversation. How can I, as a small town, I grew up next to you. Yeah, I grew up uh, in police in a community like yours. Well, you know, and uh, how, so I felt, what right do I have to really? be a part of this conversation, um, you know, and, but I spoke with some uh, uh, of some clergy and uh, some people that I feel have really wise to this conversation and they all reaffirmed, no, you need to be a part of the conversation. You need to be there for them. Yeah. Um, I was speaking with, the, um, I was in a, a group with uh, some uh, teachers yesterday in a Zoom meeting and one of the teachers told a story of uh, how they have a they have a, a black friend and which always sounds bad when someone says it right but yeah. but the story behind it was was excellent she had reached out to him and uh, in what he related is he was kind of hurt that no one that none of their friends in their groups had reached out to ask him as a black man how do you feel right now and yeah. uh, so uh, I think we need to do that we need if we have people around us we don't we shouldn't ignore the conversation we should sit and definitely ask, how are you feeling right now? You know, how does this affect you? Absolutely. Okay. So. I interviewed one of my friends earlier, like on Saturday, and um, he said the exact same thing. He's African-American, his name is Jalen. And I asked like, what, what can I as a white person do to help this? Because I'm not the one who's suffering. Right. And he just said like, reach out to your black friends. That, that's the most important thing that you can do. Tell them you love them, tell them you care about them and tell them that you'll stand with them because that's it that's what helps like to reinforce those bonds that you know should be keeping america together absolutely absolutely and again i think that i'm hoping that that will be powerful so um for us to do yeah and, and we we've seen these kinds of like i don't want to say violent because the vast majority of the protests aren't violent but these wild um massive protests that sometimes, you know, go international with like Rodney King back in 1991 mm -hmm. and George Zimmerman, although he wasn't a cop in 2012 and 
Eric Garner and Michael Brown in 2014. But what do you think is going to make this time different? You know, I don't know. So I, I, I hate to date myself, but I was in the police academy around the time of uh, Rodney King. Rodney King, and uh, that was a tough time to be a cop. And uh, yeah. and there, I, there were a lot of reforms that came out of it, and uh, and a lot of changes in our methods and practices. Uh, and, and that's that is that was I think good. Uh, as far as changes go, I think you know the conversations about change is moving too fast without data any data to it uh, so i'm worried about that that uh, reactions uh, especially by politicians without uh, consulting and and bringing in ex subject matter experts could lead to some 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 problems but uh, there's been a lot of reform uh, we study procedural justice uh, president obama did the 21st century uh, task force studied policing and gave us a lot of guidelines and ways to work a lot of communities have embraced it, including us. We developed a strategic plan for the next five years based on those principles of constitutional policing. We attend training in implicit bias, um, um, procedural justice, and all sorts of courses surrounding this topic. And we have checks and balances in place to monitor ourselves. So uh, as far as in, in my organization, uh, we we are putting, to put, putting effort maximum effort into fair policing but like other issues of mental health of uh of poverty of hunger in our communities we have the most resources and we can mm -hmm. devote the most amount of time to these topics so i can't you know again i can't speak to a major city that's struggling with budgets and just trying to get people on the cops on the on cops on the street to keep some keep it safe um, we devote time so i have I have a team of people as part of that strategic plan that just look at crime prevention in a constitutional manner. And yeah. Working to develop programs and to safeguard that. So that's a luxury we have in a, in a, in a smaller community, especially an affluent one. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I've, you know, read a lot about is how with like the, the militarization of the police, which is a topic I'm sure you're well versed in, a lot of those resources have enabled police to do a lot of preemptive policing, basically like patrolling areas that might be assumed to be high risk areas. And a lot of times those areas tend to be poor black neighborhoods. And although Hopkinton definitely isn't um, one of these, you know, that doesn't consist of any of these places. Why do you think that is? Because places like Boston, places like Minneapolis, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on implicit bias training, yet they're still dedicating vast amounts of their resources to policing primarily black areas with no reason other than their high risk. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not really in a position to speak to that, but without looking at their data, like, you know, we should be, we should be directing our sources based on data. And if they have a historical data that shows that there are more crimes being committed in an area, we should allocate our resources there. And, you know, Commissioner Gross and Commissioner Evans before him, I've, I've spoken with them. They're very smart and they love that city. They, they talk about it like it's the whole city's their neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I would, I, it's just speaking for them, with them, because I know them a little bit personally through my work with the marathon. Um, I can't imagine that they're not using data-driven policing. Um, 
you know, which is, which is, we're spending taxpayer dollars. We should be doing it with some science behind it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, just because there, there was just some like data, like the American Civil Liberties Union did find that the Boston Police Department engaged in like more racially biased, like policing, um, you know, than, than it should be. Um, and it hasn't really been made clear that they have done much to combat this issue. And like implicit bias training, while it is good, it is not effective alone, you, no. if you're understanding what I'm saying. Exactly. I, my whole uh, methodology for combating a problem is you go out and look at the problem, identify the causes, and you attack the problem at all different levels. So mm -hmm. you can't, there's no silver bullet for, for a complex problem uh, like crime or racism, you know, because just look at simple larceny. If, if, I mean, you, you got to understand if someone's stealing for food, <laughs> we have a problem as a society. Because yeah. in, in the you know in a wealthy country like us, it's 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 shameful that any person is hungry, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so you have to look at all the all the problems that are feeding the larger issue and and attack all of them. And, and that's how you I believe that's how you make true progress. So implicit bias training in itself, no, it's not enough. You need leaders and supervisors and uh, oversight and accountability and all that goes into um, building a fair and just system. Uh, it's just like um, when you talk about incarceration rates. Um, yeah. I don't think, and, and this, this is, can get me in trouble, but I'm gonna say it. If police are disproportionately arresting minorities and they're going before juries and then they're going before judges and being disproportionately sentenced to longer terms, then we have to be face ourselves as a, as a, as a country. <laughs> yeah the system's broken but you know measures that just are almost punitive towards the police is not going to fix that and it's almost another way to for other people to be silent oh we're going to stand we'll stand here and we'll say the police are bad but we're not going to look at those things i mean I, yeah I, believe, I don't think that's genuine well part of it's like the police aren't the ones who write the laws they're only the ones who enforce it right and mm -hmm. and in 1986 um the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed, and that basically, I mean, I'm sure you know what it does because it was enforced around the country, <laughs> but it it basically led to a 100 to 1 ratio of um, like crack versus powdered cocaine, and crack, which was supposedly used much more among black people than powdered cocaine was, was punished much harsher. So like if you carried five grams of crack uh, on you, you'd be punished to at least a minimum of five years if you were convicted. Whereas if you were carrying 500 grams of powdered cocaine, you would only, only then would you get the same sentence. And so it's like people tend to like blame the police officers for this problem, but you're not the ones who wrote that law. Right. Uh, sentencing guidelines are, are written at the, at the federal level and the, and the state level. So um, we don't, we're not part of that. Um, that all that process is, is long after we're done. So. Yeah, but at, at the same time, though, it, it, it does find that although like black uh, users of crack cocaine were 15% of America's drug users, they still constituted nearly 40% of their arrests. Wow, that's, I, that's just, just, just I didn't, I wasn't aware of. Yeah, um, and, and I, I guess like what I'm trying to get at here is like 
people are calling for the police to be defunded. And uh, what's your response to that? Do you believe that defunding the police would only make these problems worse? I do. I think uh, we, as a, you know, I, I take my fiduciary responsibility very serious and I spend the community's money uh, based on data and based on their expectations. They have very high expectations and they support the police department to get this server level of service that they that they want uh, that is a luxury i guess of being in this community uh, and so uh, you know you the, it's the real world lucas you, you can't do stuff without money <laughs> you yeah. know unfortunately you know the you know hope hope doesn't pay people and uh hope doesn't buy things so uh, you know i think oversight we have there's a there's a team on the hill that watches my spending and uh and uh and we uh we are accountable for it so uh, i think defunding it would be a shame especially in the inner city if, if the police vacate those neighborhoods I, I just can't imagine what would happen do you think that um like the minneapolis police department is like disband or i'm not exactly sure what the official term is but they're basically dismembering it and building it from the ground up do you think that that is a better solution to the problem? Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I haven't seen the plan, but it, would, it should be very deliberate, that, you know, and uh, well thought out. And, you know, if, if, if people have a plan that brings, fixes a, a broken police department, then, then we should all look at it. And, and even, if, even if there's components of it that I can utilize, here to make my department better or i'm open to i'm open to the discussion so i i would i don't want to say what their that their idea is a bad because i i i haven't seen it yeah and as far as uh defunding and the other concepts of of stripping budgets uh one of one one model that i see that it is the most effective model uh and most was the best thing that happened to the police department uh in years was we partnered with uh with a with the team of clinicians so uh you know we recognize that oftentimes people are arrested for say disorderly conduct or disturbing the peace because they're in crisis whether it's a mental health issue or an event in their life is they, they just can't manage that's um, yeah. very common so we partnered and we have a jail diversion program where clinicians ride with us and uh they're available to us and uh, they through that process we we deal we we help dozens of people every year and avoid arrest uh, so models like that 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 model I think can be overlaid over a lot of solutions that don't involve the police crime fighting function but it begins with us being there I mean we're there in the middle of the night we show up and people need I've been to a lot of victims houses and uh, of Victims of domestic violence, and 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 uh, and we, I, I believe we need to be there, and that, but we also have to have the support of other resources. And in here in Hoppington, we have a great a great support system. We through our uh, youth and family services, we have uh, clinicians that can follow up too. So we have we can handle it at the crisis level, and then we can hand off to uh, counselors to give more long-term. And we also have uh, contracts with resources to provide extended uh, uh, care for people in need, uh, whether yeah. it's abuse or mental health. It, 
Um, it, it's, but again, it goes to that problem of um, we have resources and we have invested in it. Some, mm -hmm. some cities are barely scraping by. Yeah, I, I was gonna, you know, ask like, is that something that's been implemented nationwide, but it doesn't sound like it has. No, no, but it's pretty strong regionally. Um, I think your community might be getting involved in it as well. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. Um, and do you think that's something that like is achievable, like plausible, something that we could do nationwide? I think so, absolutely. And there is some, there is moving towards the middle, there are some people talking about that. We should have uh, people that, first off, the police should have enough training to get through the, the hot moment and de-escalate uh, the situation. And but it and, appears, it appears as if a lot of police officers don't like I, I took a look at the training requirements based on the United States or in the United States versus other countries. And it's in, in certain countries, it's like you need to spend as much as like 32 months training with like a veteran officer before you're allowed to, you know, uh, operate solo or, or operate um, under your own influence. Um, and in America, I, I think it's like 18 weeks. And it's as much as it can be the 21, 22 weeks. And then, they, then we have a uh, 11 or 12 week uh, field training where they partner with a field trainer and they, they review all the policies and practices and ensure that their tactics are sound. Um, uh, and then, then, they, then they go out on their own. And Lucas, that's a money thing, I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, to invest three years of training into someone without really having them independent. Because in a lot of countries, if you have two man cars, that's one thing, but when you're operating a one man car, you're talking almost four years of paying someone before you before they actually fill a shift. Um, yeah. So that that would be devastating to uh, you know communities like ours, uh, small small communities where they live one one man cars, one officer cars. Yeah. Um, so um, CNN like found that in custody deaths rates in the U.S. like per capita doubled Australia and was more than six times more than the United Kingdom. What do you attribute that to? Well, most in custody deaths are related to um, positional asphyxia or excited delirium. Um, those are, and, and we've all had training on it. In the, specifically in the minute, the, uh, in the most recent video, when you put someone in handcuffs and you lay them on this, on this stomach, basically the supportive tissue and muscles, and I'm no doctor, uh, aren't strong enough to uh, allow the, the chest to expand enough to, to maintain your breathing. So although your, your windpipe might be available and you may be able to speak, it, it's almost as if you're being crushed by your own body weight. So we're trained to always put someone in what's called left lateral recumbent after a struggle. Uh, we would, and, and we don't put them in the cruiser on their stomach um, and we monitor them afterwards. So the fact that they had some type of altercation, which the, he should should have been on his side, and obviously they shouldn't have been kneeling on him, or uh, or he should have been put into a cruiser. Uh, what used to what triggered a lot of that is uh, binding people's feet to their hands, uh, which is a restraint to prevent them from kicking out windows and stuff. But uh, especially with that, it's very important that uh, the person be monitored uh, very closely after after a struggle, if uh, for those reasons. So how would you deal with that? Like, like if that happened, how, how would you deal with that? If one of your officers did that to someone who, who they were arresting? So 
I backing up, I, I feel that someone would have ripped him off of that, that man, physically removed him if he didn't. Um, I, I, I feel my offices would have intervened in the moment. But I mean, you're talking, we have a, we have a process here. It would be, um, I would be placed, uh, would be placed on, uh, start an internal investigation. They'd be advised of their rights and taken off duty. And I would be on the phone with the district attorney within, uh, immediately after the hearing of it. So, uh, because they are the charging authority. Yeah. How do you navigate the blue wall of silence? Have you heard that before? So uh, I, I don't think that truly exists. I, uh, I can tell you that when officers have acted inappropriately, other officers have come to me uh, as a sergeant, as a lieutenant, and as a deputy, and I'm confident that as a chief uh, that they would. I don't think, I don't think it exists. Uh, that, uh, one of the things about... Uh, this department is we uh, we look for certain people to police our community. So there's a testing process, then there's initial interview with the board, and when they get into um, my conference room, now I haven't um, I haven't hired hired anybody. I'm a new chief, but I've been in there with with prior chiefs. We're really looking for people that have empathy. That we're looking for people that care. People that have have uh, some life experience that, or, or some, some, the upbringing uh, to really police the way we do. And, uh, and that's the final vetting. And you, you, the person may be the smartest and answer all, the, all of it correctly, but if we don't feel they're genuine and empathetic, they're not getting hired. And it begins there, so. Yeah, uh, another thing that's being called for is um, the elimination of qualified immunity. Could you like, briefly like explain what that is and whether or not you believe that it is, you know, something we should retain. Sure. So I had to actually educate myself a little bit on it. Um, qualified immunity protects government uh, employees from uh, civil uh, lawsuits. Unless there is a known, and I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, like unless they knowingly commit a crime. So if, if isn't it like a violate, like a constitutional right? Yes. So let's, for instance, a judge finds someone guilty, and then later on the person is found to be innocent. Mm -hmm. the, the judge can't be sued. Okay. Um, if a police officer does something that later on is determined, because law changes a lot by rulings of the Supreme Court and Superior Court, you know, if later on a judge turns or turns overturns it. The police officer is protected because he made the decision based on the law at that time. Okay. That being said, you don't have qualified immunity if you commit a commit a crime. There, if the most egregious things that uh, men and women do uh, in government are not protected. You're not protected from qualified immunity. Police officers get sued all the time. Um, so, but it's because they didn't follow the, the law or they uh, were grossly in violation of the departmental policies. So yeah. That's my understanding, not as a lawyer, but that's, my, that's the premise I'm working on. Yeah, um, so, so do you think eliminating qualified immunity would help in any capacity to you know, bring accountability to the police? 
Um, honestly, no. I think what you'll have is a mass exodus from law enforcement. Let me ask you this as a man, Lucas. I, I worked 29 years in this field. I go to sleep at night, and I'm and I'm vulnerable to, to civil litigation of every member of the department, right? If my department's broken, or if they believe I haven't trained my officers appropriately, or I'm allowing a condition to to accept, I'm liable, and I understand that. But if I was open to be sued uh, on mis because someone made a mistake, or because the law position of the law changed, you know. Um, and I would have to look at it as, as a, uh, a husband, a, a father, and a grandfather that I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't have the money to, to, to fight litigation like that. And I think there would be a lot of frivolous uh, or money-seeking litigation. And I would, you know, I'll tell you right now, Lucas, I would probably not be here. I, I just couldn't do it. It'd be too much risk. I'm willing to die for, for to protect my community, but. If, if, if it's just a money thing, uh, you know, I think uh, 29 years might be it for me. Yeah, there's a real chance to harm not only you, but your, put your whole family in debt. Right. I mean, I grew up, um, uh, I never wanted for food, but we didn't have a lot of money. And the little bit that I've saved over, over my life, um, you know, I'm hoping to pass some down, yeah. you know? leave my children better than than uh, than uh, than than they were would be so yeah um, not to get not to get all personal on you but i think that people need to look at that and and if and if the concept is flawed why would juries and judges not be in the conversation and yeah senators senators and and congressmen you know you know so. well another thing that's happening is that there's a lot of people right now who are really just blaming the police. And while police, uh, and I don't, I don't believe all police, but police certainly are part of the problem. They're not the mm -hmm. only problem. So I, I wonder, I, I feel it's a little immature to, to only blame the police, right? Because it's, it's laws that have like, although not technically or not like worded racially, have enabled racial discrimination to continue. Absolutely. You know, if you look at your analogy with the crack, there's a reason crack targeted those neighborhoods. People preyed on, on those communities because, they, because of the price points. They set the price points at a ridiculously low level to saturate those markets and to get yeah. that, those communities addicted. Um, the powder, the powder didn't, didn't stay in the more affluent communities. And it, they didn't want to make the jump to crack, so they targeted the, the poorer communities. And, and they were victimized by the whole thing, by people uh, seeking money. And then in response, uh, there was a massive government outcry to, to fight, the, fight uh, the drug war, and money was thrown at it. And that money came from congressmen and, and, and senators and the House of Representatives threw an enormous amount of money at that and set the expectation and to go into those cities and, and police it in that heavy fashion. So we as a country are not, uh, we're all complicit in that. And, uh, you know, yeah. we all of But you don't, you weren't around, you, you weren't involved <laughs> in it. <laughs> yeah, but um, at the same time, like one, one thing that uh, my friend Jalen told me is that like, 
there's there's a lot that like you know you and I don't really understand and there's a lot of like frustration right and that's what's like like it's a built up from from all these like events all all these laws and all this stuff that's been like indirectly but intentionally done to target uh people of that skin color yeah well i can't speak to intention but i would agree that it certainly has yeah you know i'm not sure that the intention was to go in and, and tear apart uh the black or minority communities but it it did well and i i think we can attribute that to the media um because a lot of what the media has done is marginalize everyone from each other like like it's creating this idea that police basically are are like blood cold you know killers uh, of like black people and, and that vice you know and conversely that black people are, are these like maniacs who are burning and burning down buildings and rioting. And what do you have to say to that? I, I have to say that uh, we're not going to go anywhere as long as there's we have such polarizing media. Um, they're not. It, it's not journalism because journalists, true journalists, would tell both sides and confront both both sides of the issue, right? Yeah. And so they would give information and perspective to people so that people can make their own decisions. There's none of that going on. I, I intentionally watch uh, both sides of the media and it, it's like you live in a different world, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like you, you see the same story and you, and you say, well, they left off these six points and the other side only covers those six points, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, 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 I think they're, they're not doing a service to, to anybody with this divisionary, uh, uh, media cycle it's and it's relentless and it's so inflamed you know so it, it only perpetuates like the like these these stereotypes and these ideas like like in, you know for black people it perpetuates the idea that like or the myth or the stereotype that black people are criminals and that they're thugs and, and you know obviously our president doesn't really help with that and the police hate them right yeah that's what breaks my heart is that for people to look at me and think because I wear this uniform that I, I hate black people, which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Are there any African American officers in the Hopkins and PD? No, I, I was asked that earlier if I was satisfied with the diversity of, um, of my department and no, I'm not. Um, we, uh, we are a white police department. Um, and um, we only have three out of 27 officers who are female. So, um, you know, that's something that we want to work at. But I, I don't know the reasons, but we don't have a lot of minority applicants. And what I want to look at is I have to reevaluate our initial test because we, our process interviews the top 25 people based on a score and maybe Maybe that isn't the best way to begin our process. Yeah. Um, that's because that's a, you know, you know, maybe, maybe I know there's a lot of good people that might not have gone to the best schools and it yeah. has nothing to do with their intellect, but, um, or their, their quality, quali qualities to be a, an excellent police officer. They just weren't afforded the education that others were, you know, when yeah. you get, and you're, and you're only interviewing down to say a, a 90s mm -hmm. you know i don't know 
I think that's something that I've been thinking about since that question was asked, how can I be better? And that's something that I want to, I want to dive into. Yeah. I know. Um, so other questions, um, what do you think we can do to eradicate police brutality? I think we have to create a culture where any extremism is not allowed, whether it's brutality or over, for instance, in the, in the community. When you're doing traffic enforcement, you have to find the right level, the level that, that is enough to reduce crashes and keep people safe, but not an oppressive level. But how do you find that happy medium? By listening, by being a part of conversations and being connected with the community. When you have community members coming up to you and say, which we have here in town, um, you know, it seems like you guys write a lot of tickets or, you know, people are talking, they're all sick of getting tickets, you know, because maybe the threshold uh, for, for ticket writing is too low. You know, if you're stopping cars at three miles an hour over writing tickets, uh, you're not doing a service. You know? Yeah. So, you know, if you're not stopping them until they're 25 miles an hour over the speed limit, you're not, you're not doing the community a service. So, um, and this that itself, the data going into that decision process, you think of all you have to look at to pick that point, you know, you know, are your roads good? Are you having accidents? You know, um, are you have really severe accidents and how many people are being injured versus fender benders and, uh, you know, so that's the type of conversation we need to have. I like to have with every issue, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you do to like ensure accountability? Like, does your specific, you know, um, county require officers to wear um, body cams? Sure. So we've we're in, I think, our fifth iteration of cruiser cameras, um, going back to the uh, mid '90s. Uh, we've had mm -hmm. cruiser cameras and. Um, we also have the ability to, through our microphone to record the audio of our encounters, even though we might be off camera. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, looking at body cameras is, is an enormous undertaking. And unfortunately, a lot of cities that have gone to them are getting rid of them because of the demands on resources. Um, for instance, they, you, you, you almost have to have a team of people just to manage public records and, and discovery requests. When you uh, have that, that volume of recording, um, you know, there's, there's all, so for a court case, we, we have to prepare, we, we, we provide all the on-scene video and all the station video and all the yeah. phone calls and all the radios. But if you have, um, you know, if you're getting recordings from all different scenes, inevitably you'd have to repeat that process. Plus you'd have to uh, provide public records. Plus you have to have a trained team that knows what has to be redacted mm -hmm. and what has to get waivers. And it, so you end up building a big civilian, a big team, sometimes with officers and sometimes with civilians just to manage it. Um, so, you know, I, I'm open to it, but I just think that having looked at it, there has to be a big background built behind it before you can roll it out. Otherwise, yeah. it's, it's swamping departments is what it's doing. It, it comes down to funding again. Like, and, it, and, and that's why it, you know, it's beginning to be clear to me that I, I don't think defunding the police is, is at all a way to solve police brutality. It, it only you know, appears as if it'll decrease accountability, right? Because 
the first thing you're going to do if you have less money, you're not going to fire your, your fellow officers. You're not going to lay off. You're going to, you know, reduce the equipment. You're going to sell off the equipment and sell off the other stuff that like basically all the technically unnecessary stuff. Sure. And eliminate overtime and stop programs that cost money, you know, like, you know, having an officer who works midnights, uh, but has a program that they're delivering out in the community, mm -hmm. uh, you know, stopping that, you know, which nobody wants, you know. Yeah. I know my community just wants more, more of us around and with them. Uh, they said it, we surveyed them uh, a year ago, and that's, that was when they were asked, what, what can we do better? And, oh, what do you want more of? And they just said, we want you out in the community more. That was the resounding, resounding thing. So we have a community outreach team uh, that is putting together new programs. We created an outlet affairs officer, uh, Officer Molly McGaffigan, is working hand in hand with the uh, the uh, the director of elder affairs, and uh, it, it's going really well. And and I would hate to lose that, you know. Yeah. I, so so what ways can we increase accountability among police officers and police uh, agencies around the country without, um, you know, because I, I doubt any county is going to vote in a bill that would increase funding to police um, <laughs> agencies in any you know time. Right. Now, I mean, we can't forget that we're in a difficult economic time and state and federal aid is going to get cut and we're scrambling to, we're scrambling now to just keep what we have at the, at the executive level. I mean, it, it, the finances, financial future is uncertain at, at, at the best word. Yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, accountability ha begins with the, uh, being connected with the community. It begins on the street, but also can work up through the different levels to the executive level. I, my board uh, has no, my select board has no hesitation in reaching out if they hear something that it might have gone wrong with, with something in the department, as does the town manager and as does the community um, we, because of the trust that we have. But we have to ensure how we have to increase the accountability and, and our level is to make sure that all, all members of the population feel that, that their cr criticism or their complaint is welcome. And, uh, and so that goes down to whenever someone does bring a complaint in, in the way you respond in every word. You know, if you respond from a defensive position, you know, you, you, what, we, what I do generally is when someone says something happened is I said, all right, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me begin looking into it. You will, we will get back to you. And then yeah. I do my process of assigning someone. So being open and available, I think, is, is the beginning. We have policies in place that all use of force requires a report that gets reviewed at, at my level. Um, you know, so, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I guess a lot of people are looking at civilian review boards and stuff. That's, you know, there's both sides of that. Uh, uh, there's both sides of that, you know. Officers, we do we act based on our training and from through our lens um, and experience. And I, there's a lot of fear among police officers that to be um, told what to do by a civilian who has no perspective or training or uh, maybe even an anti-police agenda is it, it. A lot of officers fear that. Yeah. So and we should we and we we should also have the courts as our oversight, right? Mm -hmm. 
the judges know they they pick up on bad cops and you know their cases don't go anywhere and um they they let the just the defensive counsels go at them you know so, well why do you think then like the police officers you know, responsible. I'm not exactly familiar with what happened to the police officers in the Rodney King case, but I know in Eric Garner's um, death and in Michael Brown's death, the officers were acquitted or faced minimal time in jail. I don't know. I don't know what went wrong there. Um, I don't. I actually didn't watch the trials. Um, maybe I should have been more engaging to understand it. Um, Rodney King. I mean they they their defense was that they were trained to use these glancing blows well you have six cops just jump on the guy get him down the yeah. car, cops in the car right yeah you know, it's not like you're fighting a, a superhero it's, it's a human mm -hmm. it's a man you know um so i don't know whether that's why how they were able to do it but um yeah i don't know like in, yeah in, to put yourself in the mind of a juror, you know, that's that's difficult to do too, because you know, they're in isolation hearing from basically two sides and they have to make a decision. And um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what went wrong there. Yeah. So how do you how do you train your officers to protect against that? Right. So it, it you know, you train uh, you train as you do, right? So we try to instill uh, good, strong training and de-escalation. But I'll tell you, Lucas, uh, and if you watch uh, the now canceled cops or live PD, you'll see it all the time. The officer is involved in a scuffle fighting in combat, right? And all of a sudden, a second officer will come up and do a simple move or grab a wrist or, uh, of the, the defendant, and it just helps calm the situation down. All it would have probably taken was the right person to walk up to Chauvin, and, and hopefully, I would I want to hope that just tapping him on the shoulder and say, "All right, let's get him up." Yeah. Break, because if you look at him, he looks just the look in the eye, like he's it's almost like he's not there, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't know what was going on in his mind, and I, 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 I hope I can never understand fully what, what was going on in his mind, um, but, you know, so. What happens is officers are involved in, in scuffles and then the next person comes in and, it, and it's over and then it becomes through training and repetitiveness all right this is what we do we roll the person on their side we talk to them we de-escalate through conversation we explain to them what's going to happen next we get them sit, sitting up we get them standing we move them into the cruiser we continually communicate with them trying to de-escalate the situation and when that happens over and over again, it just becomes muscle memory and it becomes a process. Um, but it but it takes time to teach people that. And that's why we rely on our, our more, more, more senior officers or officers with little experience to, in, at every call, teach how we handle calls and how we do our job. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? I think they do. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I think they no, do. And I think about the movement, when, I guess. I think, um, so, you know, I think it, it's, it's discouraged to say all lives matter because it takes away, detracts from the, the singular point of the Black Lives Matter slogan mm -hmm. or movement or both. Um, and I think that right now, 
that is the conversation that we need to have and focus on. Um, and, but in my heart and in my work, I, everybody matters and I've worked my whole life to be there for everyone. Um, and, but I won't, I don't want to do anything that derails this conversation. So uh, black lives matter. Yeah. Um, what, do, what do you tell other officers or other people who, who bite back against black lives matter with um, blue lives matter? I think that it's a natural expression to say, wait, I matter too. You know, mm -hmm. just like me saying, don't paint me with that broad brush because I wear a uniform. I, I think it's not, it, it's a natural response. But I think uh, we have to recognize that uh, the feeling is that when we say it, that we're taking away from, from the movement. I recognize yeah. that. Yeah, my, my friend Jalen, uh, I've mentioned him already, uh, but he, he basically gave me this metaphor. And it's like a house is burning in a neighborhood. And right now, this is the black house. And they're saying, you know, like, when your house is burning, the fire department doesn't spray all the houses with water. It sprays <laughs> the one that's on fire, because that's the one that's in danger right now. That's a great analogy. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like you agree with me on this. I agree that we need to really focus on our friends and uh, our black communities. And we have a lot of work to do to safeguard them and to let them know that uh, they matter. Yeah. So w what did you think about Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem? So, you know, that, that tears at my uh, feelings and, and, uh, and about the country. And, you know, we've all evolved through this conversation, right? Um, I can tell you that you're gonna be hard pressed to get a lot of people to kneel during the national anthem uh, because of what it represents and all those who have given to, to, um, to make this country and protect this country. So mm -hmm. I'm, still, I'm still kind of working through that myself. Um, you know. Do you know. personally feel disrespected when, you know, when Kaepernick takes a knee or, or when other, you know, other players take a knee during the national anthem. Do you personally feel disrespected? No, not personally. I, I, I look at it through the lens of how it makes me feel in relation to our country, but it's not personal, you know. So does it make you feel like ashamed of our country and that's why, like, it makes you upset? Uh, I, again, it doesn't make me upset. I just don't, I don't think, I don't know that I could agree with it, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, you know, you obviously can tell I'm pretty open to listen to people's positions and, mm -hmm. uh, feelings, and I want people to tell me their feelings and positions. So I'm not, I wouldn't, you know, I don't take it personally and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't begrudge him that right, you know, uh, to do that. Okay. So, so just to clarify, you're, you wouldn't ever prohibit him from doing it, but it's just not something that you personally would do. Yes, because of I don't have, uh, I don't want, would never want to uh, do anything to offend. Uh, I never was a soldier. I never went into battle. Uh, I never left the country in, in a transport vehicle or spent. Uh, I, I don't have that experience, and, and I have nothing but respect for our soldiers. And I would never want to do anything to show any any disrespect to them. Yeah, e even though like. Colin Kaepernick did say he wasn't doing it to disrespect the soldier. He, he was doing it to make America a better place. And, and in that way, he was trying to be patriotic. 
and that's why, and that's that's exactly why I would never do anything to inhibit him from doing it. But we we all have to espouse our beliefs and stand up the way we choose to stand up for things that we, uh, our feelings and our beliefs. Yeah, it's just like I'm never going to light a building on fire to, to to push a movement forward, right? Yeah, it's, I mean that's way extreme. But I'm just—I was looking for an analogy. Okay, I should ask Jalen to help me because he seems pretty—he's <laughs> really good at it. <laughs> we um, all need—we all need help moving this conversation forward, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of us were afraid to be in it before, and and as we enter it, it's—it's it's not easy. And I'm sure I've said something wrong today because I'm just speaking too honestly, too much from the heart. But that's what I'm here. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm in the. I guess I'm in the fight. I'm trying. But it, it matters a lot, and it makes a difference, and I think people can tell. Um, I'm happy that, that, that we did this, and, and I feel like it, it was a very productive thing to do. I do, I do too, and I, I, and I want to thank you, Lucas, for giving me this forum to communicate with people. Um, and, you know, although we, we had a friendly conversation, I think you, hit the, you challenged it, and you hit the, you hit the topics. You know, you could have avoided qualified immunity or other topics, uh, but you didn't. You chose not to, and and I, I respect you for that, and uh, I appreciate the way you did it. You know, this is a step in the right direction. Um, you know, communication and starting a dialogue, just like Colin Kaepernick tried to do, and arguably did when he took a knee during the national anthem. It's important to to have this dialogue um, because it it enables change to happen when people know how other people are feeling. There is change and and that's why you know that that's why i'm so happy that i got to call you today and, and i can't thank you enough for giving me your time i'm sure you're a very busy man my phone's been ringing off the hook and i get like like 15 more emails um no Lucas, <laughs> this is this there's no important, more important issue right now for me to be addressing and uh and thank you for giving me your time and letting me use your forum to to communicate and uh, I hope, and if I did, if I did misspeak or make a mistake, uh, I want everybody to know that it, it was not, it was unintentional and, and I'm just trying to get better and, and get better in service to, to the yeah. community. Yeah, absolutely.